This is the European edition of Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We bring you the European unicorn startups, founders, regulators and leaders innovating the rapidly evolving fintech scene today. A truly localized podcast with both English and local language content with some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in the fintech sector globally. Join us every week as we explore what makes the European Union a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest-growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll. Welcome, everybody. We are here at Money 2020 in Amsterdam, and we are here at the Société Générale booth with Claire Calmejan. She is the Chief Innovation Officer at Société Générale. And we are here to discuss with her after her amazing speech, I have to say. So my first question to you, Claire, um, it's about uh, uh, the difficulties you have incurred in your digital journey. So you were uh, speaking about the successful journey you have done with Société Générale. And uh, I'm really curious to understand how was to harmonize the legacy of such a big bank like Société Générale and the innovation path you followed. I mean, it's a it's a question where we could spend, uh, I guess, uh, you know, an hour, days, nights, you know, uh, uh, to answer. But first, you know, over the last three years, there is three things I'm very, very proud about with the team. Uh, the first one is, you know, working. We built all the cockpits across our segments. You know, Société Générale is very diversified, and we have about a 15 line of business, 10 service units. We are 135,000 colleagues across the world, uh, you know, uh, uh, serving 22 million customers on retail with seven retail banks, so it's quite huge. And we've managed, you know, for mass market customers, uh, mass affluent and high net worth, um, SME, uh, large corporate to really identify, you know, what are what is the cockpit of our digital strategy? What are the, where do we stand, you know, compared to competition? And what are our differentiators? Because you know, the digital transformation is very, very large, and it's important to have some strategic bets where you will differentiate your brand, you know, in order to remain relevant for your customers. And that's one thing we're very, very proud to have managed to do that, is we've also learned a lot of things. You know, we are, in our retail banks, we have about, you know, more than 65% of our customers that are enrolled, and we are present in, you know, geographies such as Africa, Russia, Czech Republic, Romania, France, so it's very, very diversified. What do we call, uh, you know, uh, active digital customers? It's not just enrolled, actually. It's, you know, you really transact, you redo really an operation per month. And these customers, they visit us in average 30 times a month. So, you know, can you figure out, you know, like crossing, you know, uh, your franchise, your brand 30 times a month, almost once a day. Uh, it's quite, you know, it's quite spectacular as a result. And we've managed to push digital sales up to three, threefold, depending on our geographies, up to tenfold, from threefold up to tenfold and digital acquisition, almost starting from scratch up to tenfold, you know, in all our geographies. And that's the first thing I'm very, very proud about, um, working with our top 60 digital leaders and animating this community around digital marketing. I guess the second one is around uh, AI and efficiency. So, uh, you know, we had a portfolio when I arrived and always about the number of use cases we had. But like when I was looking at the value, I was like, you know, it's, it's not enough, it's not big enough, it's yeah. not scaling. And like we've really managed over the three years to reach a 200 million expected value portfolio. 
and to do that at speed. So most of the portfolio value have been generated over the past six months, which means that you know we are ready, we have the rails in order to accelerate again and reach Kel. And some of these big AI are around you know fraud management, uh, legal AI assistance, you know about crunching a large number of documents when we make deals in our financing activity, but also at the heart of the bank in the way we work and in the way we manage. Uh, some other AI around predicting when a customer is going to be overdraft and the likeliness in order to focus on customers that have the most vulnerability. So, you know, we're really working this AI for human, AI to support our staff, AI for good, and AI which is trustworthy. And that's the second part I'm very proud about. And last week is about structuring the innovation journey and innovation portfolio. In Sugen, there was a lot of new business model, a lot of activities, but like, you know, what, what it needed is a structuration. What are the five teams we want to go after? We talked about Bank as a Service, and obviously we are here with Trezor today, which we acquired back in 2018, which was a fundamental in order to start our journey towards service, serving a, a 1,100 billion market. Like, you know, it's oh. like, can we take 1% of this market? It's, <laughs> it's like, yeah, we'll make everyone yeah. dream, you know, at night. So Bank as a Service was a huge one, data-driven lending, digital asset, and we created Forge, which is going to be there as well, uh, which is a, a full infrastructure working on DLT, which is enabling through a digital currency served by uh, Banque de France, served by the regulator, you know, large emission, large deal, rethinking, you know, all the, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, back-end, backbone of capital market, and digital currencies, obviously, was the last one. Uh, with the ECBs that have announced that we will have a digital euro in five years from now. So that's, you know, really the three big achievements. Um, and, you know, I guess on the pitfall and what have holding us back, I guess I'm super lucky to have like really an awesome team. Yeah. Talent, people are at the heart of this transformation. And it's also the most difficult things. So the way I did it in three years is a lot of people in, in our team, we're quite a small team, 45 people, but reporting to the general management, so with a huge impact. Uh, and huge responsibility, and it was about taking people, you know, in the organization that had large networks in order to put in motion this agenda and to really, you know, bring the party and, and create this community of engagement, this sense of purpose of driving the transformation. Where are we going? Why are we doing it? And this is much more powerful when it's in actions and actually reporting line or hierarchical, you know, uh, um, ways. But setting, that, setting this agenda in motion is probably the hardest thing, but it's something I've done again and again. Yeah. No, it's amazing. Every time I, I hear you speaking, Claire, first of all, you're super passionate of what you're doing and, and you can really feel it. And uh, of course, uh, it seems like you are doing this from, I don't know, 10 years. It's impressive how you made some good changes within your organization in such a short period of time, actually. And you were um, also during your speech, you were talking about the transformation of your team. So how you need to take everybody on the journey with you, and that it's it's really impressive. Uh, you mentioned Trezor, and I've seen uh, a lot of developments, of course, within uh, SG Ventures, which was uh, one of your also um, big initiatives within Société Générale. And uh, what I noticed, but correct me if I'm wrong, is that the approach you had uh, toward the investments was more a um, takeover kind of strategy uh, and not a pure investment one as many other CBC are doing. So could you double click on that and explain us a little bit uh, your choices? Uh, of course, Francesca. So as you pointed out, in our portfolio of SG Venture, we have about you know, 40 lines today. Uh, about five of them are 100% acquisition. 
They've not been always 100% acquisition. Okay. Rizoka, our latest addition, actually we entered uh, at 25% of the capital at the beginning through one of our subsidiary. Yeah. Um, and we've seen several synergy and we decided to materialize, you know, uh, after wise and basically to take over the company at 100% which is always a transition because if we don't take 100%, there is call put and the management transition which are happening over time. Uh, but that's also important to understand. So we have this acquisition and we'll come back on it. We have minority ticket investments. So we have a couple of them, but again, you know, from our observation, as we want strategic, you know, we observe that the best for us is really to enter in this type of tickets, get call put and take, you know, take over the company. So, you know, we just had on stage Lemonero, which was coming, which is basically a Czech uh, company, which is for marketplace uh, doing data-driven lending, one of our priority area, and enabling, uh, you know, a small business to predict what they are going to sell and basically to adapt, you know, our lending capability based on this e-commerce marketplace trends which are happening. And with two other types of investments, we have consortia, which you find a lot in banks. Mm -hmm. So actually through uh, uh, R3 was a consortia, but also, uh, uh, you know, uh, there have been a couple of other, Comgo, uh, which is a DLT commodity uh, uh, business model. And the last one is Fund of Funds. So we do invest a little bit into VC funds. But this one is hard to really understand the monetization. So we've done it, it's more past activities that we have done than the future. Going back to acquisition, you know, Sugen have now done five large acquisitions. One of them was Filuceo. Filuceo, we integrate 100% of the technology in Boursorama. It was a high hiring, so in order to boost, you know, a, a Boursorama development plan. Uh, and clearly, uh, Boursorama today is a leading online bank uh, in France, but uh, one of the most successful stories in Europe. And it's going to be uh, 3 million clients, uh, uh, 600k customers uh, just on the past year, uh, growing again in terms of acquisition and reaching profitability uh, next year. And it's a fully diversified business model, uh, you know, in terms of uh, neobanks providing mortgage and, uh, and the different one. I think it was a good strategy for Boursorama, but probably the reality is now will not do a 100% acquiring or, uh, you know, uh, uh, integration into the system. So we learned from that. And when we did the second acquisition around Lumo, we decided to have them uh, standalone. So it's a crowdfunding platform, B Corp, in order to provide uh, uh, ESG product, actually, you know, uh, renewable energy started, but, you know, we are diversifying now what they can do. And it was, you know, a small company of five people that we started to say, okay, want to diversify your product base, we're not doing that on Sogen, so maybe we can learn from these guys and integrate them in, in our system. Trezor was the third one, and that was consequence. Like, that was a massive push into our bank as a service strategy. And then we had Shine, a freelance new bank, which for us is a different animal. Shine is like not a bank, it's like a platform business model. Uh, it offers, you know, a, a bank accounts based on Trezor technology, but not only actually, it offers also ways to do your account, you know, your accountant, facilitate all, removing all the administrative burden, burden uh, for freelancers. And that's really their ethos, and it's much more than that. And for us, you know, they, they're quite close to our French retail bank because we don't see them as competition. You know, in less than two years, three years, they've managed to acquire 150,000 active customers. So it's a huge growth, and we keep seeing like synergies uh, in, in the way we manage it. And for us, it's, you know, what we say is it did need to be the new Bourgeois. It's part of our, you know, group portfolio uh, diversification. And I've just talked about Trizoka.
That's great, actually. And uh, I really like uh, that you point out also this learning by doing. Uh, like, uh, we did the first step, we learned how it was, uh, and we, we moved on with, uh, with other things. And the connection you can make between all your acquisitions, actually. So exactly. This product of Trezor, it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, and, and, and they work together more exactly. and more. Like, you know, Rizoka is thinking about doing it. Actually, you mentioned that, but I, I didn't mention that our latest, latest acquisition was two weeks ago. It's Keeper, which is a, a city mapper for B2B. Uh, and we did that in partnership with ALD, which is a car leasing uh, B2B franchise of uh, the group, the number one in Europe. And uh, Skipper is actually a client of Trixor, uh, who is yeah. going to work with Rizocar. And so we see the synergies of the portfolio, which are unfolding. And again, we took about uh, 18-20% of uh, equity into Skipper with call put. And you know, if the synergies are materializing, uh, it could be uh, an option is that uh, you know uh, we became uh, one of the majority shareholders of uh, Skipper and it's you know it grow this huge business which is AD. I, I think you, you're saying we're learning by doing we also need to commercial to, to materialize the commercial opportunity and also for the for the startups and for the fintech it's important to, to see that we are walking the top so you know in shine in less than six months we're providing them uh, credit facilities they were the first one in Europe to have a uh, uh, credit provided by, by Société Générale as part of the Neobank, so it's important. These milestones are very important. No, it's, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. And it, this is exactly how I think it should be, you know, uh, fully cooperation, fully collaboration between the bank and the startups and between each other. So is this the way, basically, where you can uh, um, be, make a successful uh, uh, environment, you know? I have a very last question for you, Claire. Um, I was really in love with the last part of your panel, of your speech uh, during the panel, um, because I saw you very passionate about ESG. And I really think that we keep talking about that, many people are talking about that, uh, um, but we really need to walk the talk, as you were saying uh, also before. Um, could you tell us a little bit more uh, about your uh, activities around that? What do you think about the whole ESG uh, movement? Let's define it like that. And what Société Générale is doing around that? Yeah, so I guess you know all uh, traditional organizations have a long way to go in ESG because our business model and the ethos of capitalization and how it works have not been built like that. So our, our, our GDP, you know, per country uh, is driven through carbon consumption, carbon production, which is driving the industry, which is driving GDP and revenue. So it's a full system which you have to rethink. And I often say ESG is just a new digital. You know, the same way, you know, I consider my job is having, you know, glasses and working with some senior executive and putting my glasses into their glasses in order for them to re-see the business. So for me, it's, it's the same, you know, wave of transformation which is coming through ESG. The only thing is digital. We have 10 years, you know, we still have five years. ESG, we don't have these 10 years. You know, our challenge around climate change and environment are in a five years window and we all need to harness that and to transform. And some of the pitfalls and challenges I see is like a lot of it is coming from regulation. It's coming from the regulator asking us to provide ratings, data, and people are saying like, oh yeah, I'm really good in this rating, or I'm really good in this, you know, investor, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, ranking, or the way I'm recognized. And yes, because investor, it's very hard to find the data and the categorization of the data. And, you know, rating agencies, they will look at, you know, your emission, your financing and saying, okay, this type of deals, you know, basically you got out of coal, this type of, of deals are more on renewable energy and etc. And that's one way to start the journey. But it's just not enough. 
You know, we just have to do more on finding this economic business model. I was talking about Lumo or Shine. You know, I'm very inspired by these this two CEO, very different size of company. You know, Lumo is like 5'10", but obviously they are big corp. And you know, Olivier, the CEO, is super passionate about like, you know, transforming the industry, making, you know, funding accessible for everyone, rethinking, you know, like how everyone can have access to the real economy and how, you know, projects which are quite powerful, you know, get funding and can grow and can develop and shine very different now about 150 employees. So, you know, like a very aggressive 200% growth. But they're big up and like actually running through Trezor, they've managed that Trezor get some of the agreements and maybe tomorrow Trezor will offer big up as a service uh, as part of our offering. But more importantly, it's a, it's a, again, I'm very inspired when I talk to Nicola because you know, Nicola is like, oh yeah, I calculate for my my family. You know, the the how, how do I travel? Yeah. I pay attention to, uh, uh, you yeah, know, my, how coffee is delivered, yeah. uh, but also how coffee is delivered to the office. All the small things. And I have to say, I, I just like, I'm just like, I just need to start to doing that. You know, like I did, and I, I I decided to do something last year with the head of retail banking, um, and we launched a, a fintech competition for for green company, green fintech company. And the winner of the competition was uh, Lubol Mila Jordanova from uh, Plané. And Plané is a full software that enables you to calculate you know, your uh, carbon footprint, but not only. It goes much more wider than that around uh, industrializing your ESG reporting. And she worked with most of the asset management. She developed policy team because she understands that the categorization of the, uh, uh, of the data is not good enough. And I would really encourage everyone to start working with companies like Plané because I'm like, you know, this is a global game. We need it to is, go fast and we need to find speedboats in order to accelerate, you know, this transition and, uh, um, and doing that. So the first part for me is how do we bring the innovation inside, uh, outside in, identifying the shine, the lumo, the planning, and starting to, to, to work with them. The second one is, you know, I, I think you need to get to the data, you need to understand what we are talking about. So in the management committee of Sogen, we had hours and hours of training about what are we talking about? Yeah. What are the two degree scenario? What is the positive impact finance? Do you understand enough? And when you don't, when you're in front of something and you say like, I don't get enough of it. You know, we're all human. We all want to learn and to master it. And that's really, really important to have the message understood at this level. And then to cascade it through the organization by declining the ESG strategy. So for us, very strong around environment, but around social goals as well with our diversity target with 2023 having more than 30 percent women uh, um, in management and at the level of my team you know i'm doing three things the first one is we are you know it's accessible for everyone you can do, do the climate uh, uh, workshop uh, you know with all your team it's an online tool it's free and uh, you know it just helps you to materialize you know this conversation i was talking about you know what what yeah, are the challenges making it concrete Second thing is we work with an accelerator uh, which is called Make Sense, which have a program which is called Re-Engagement for Social Citizen. And we try to apply and decline the, the, the CSR strategy into, okay, what does it mean for us and how can we move the dial? And here we have to not get lost because it's like digital. You can contribute to a lot, but like, is it part of your company strategy? Because we have to focus efforts, uh, you know, into what is really going to move the dial. Because when you're a company of 140,000 people, if you manage to move the dial in one place, it's already, it's a, already lot. a lot. You know, yeah. more, more than you know, spreading your energy on, on everything. And the last one is we have role models like Shine and Lumo, and it's my job to put them 
you know, in front of our senior executives, but also our teams uh, in order yeah. to be No, it's interesting because you, you really point out something that uh, I think is very important. Like everybody's talking about ESG on a regulatory perspective, but we need to shift a little bit the conversation more into the business uh, side, probably the use cases and so on. So you are doing an amazing job with the two, uh, and more than two actually companies that you mentioned that are very um, best cases and inspiring your company, but also, I mean, uh, all the outside. So thanks a lot. Thank there. you, Francesca. It was very good to talk with you as always. And uh, thanks everybody for tuning in. Thank you. Bye-bye. The FTS Fest is back. As 2021 develops, it will become more and more apparent how this year can truly mark the start of a second fintech revolution. Starting with a focus on sustainability, financial inclusion and impact investing, topics that today must be considered transversely, we'll explore trends that are already shaking up the industry, such as embedded and decentralized finance plotting. Be part of the Fintech Revolution 2.0. Join FTSFest.com. Hey guys, welcome back to uh, Breaking Banks Europe at Money 2020. After uh, Claire Calmejan uh, in the first part of the show, we are here with uh, Manuel Silva. Manu, welcome to the show. Yes, thanks for having me. It's good to see you in person again, finally. Exactly. You know, we, we had an amazing hug uh, and uh, I really was looking forward to, to it. Uh, Manu, to start with, a question that we have been, you have been asked a few times before, but it al it's always good to share. So, the genesis of uh, Moro Capital, passed by the realization of Santander that they needed a vehicle, built Santander Innoventures, mm -hmm. and now the transition to Moro Capital. Why and, and how? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and it's interesting because as you say, that question has been asked over, over the years, but with the current situation in the market, I think the answers I'm gonna give you are even more relevant, right? Initially, when we spun out uh, Santander Innoventures into more capital, which was like a year ago, it was based on basically two ideas. The first one is that we need to be more competitive in the market. We need to be faster, we need to be more independent. We need to be able to position ourselves with entrepreneurs as really a trusted party when we invest in companies. And the other one has to do more with talent uh, capturing and retention and, and being able to really uh, you know, be competitive on the talent market where you know it's it's very tough to come to, to hire people and you need to be competitive with the other funds, right? And I think all those two reasons are even more real today, where competitiveness for deals has increased a lot, and where VCs are judged really on the value that they can provide and and on the facts and not on the theory. Uh, you know, in a market where really the entrepreneurs seem to be having uh, you know the pan holding you know holding the pan uh, as opposed to investors maybe two or three years ago. And uh, I think, though, that uh, the, the challenge of uh, still being attractive for the bank, uh, mm -hmm. you know, still stays, right? But how this uh, sort of, uh, I don't want to say spin-off, but how this sort of change of setting uh, made this uh, more or less uh, relevant uh, in the startups that you invest in? Yeah, I think, I think somehow we're able to combine the best of, of both worlds, right? So we, we ourselves as a team, have a lot of the knowledge that you would expect from a specialist VC. And really, I think that's really what it's kind of all about. The fact that we're able to talk to entrepreneurs 
and fast forward maybe two or three meetings uh, that you know a journalist VC would have because we know exactly what they're talking about. We know why that payments problem exists. We know why the you know the challenges of expanding a lending business internationally are. I mean, all those things are things that are very common to us. Uh, but then on the other side, you know, we keep those relationships with uh, you know Santander. We keep relationship with you know other banks and other stakeholders. So we also understand the incumbent industry, so to say, which oftentimes can be a partner or a client or you know an integration uh, you know partner for for a startup. Right. So I think we're we're kind of in the right sweet spot where we can put that intelligence to work, and those connections to work, while still making uh, kind of good investments. It's actually a good transition to what I wanted to ask next. So the the how do you show that uh, your smart money is smart and mm-hmm. it may be smarter than others? Because uh, you and I were saying earlier, you know, most of the VCs uh, that were born 10 years ago are successful because mm-hmm. statistically speaking, uh, yeah. you took either some multi-hundred million, if you're lucky, a couple of unicorns as you, as you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how do you measure, you know, the value added uh, that uh, a sort of that a VC brings to an entrepreneur these days? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, and we, we keep very close with entrepreneurs, and we ask for very, very candid feedback on, you know, specific things we do for them, specific requests they have, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But really, I mean, I think that being a VC these days has become even more of a tough job, and you know, theory doesn't work. It's the practice, and it's the hard work, and it's being there for your entrepreneurs when they need you. And it's also leaving them to do their thing when they require some, some space, right? So I think that's really the way we operate with our companies. We try to be there, we try to be engaged, we don't like to be a passive investor, but we let them judge what's the right distance and where we can be helpful versus, versus others, right? We're, we're big believers that at the end of the day, a startup, a successful startup, is of course a founder, it's a team, it's an idea, but it's also the ecosystem that you're able to, to build around. Uh, and really our objective is to help build that ecosystem that's suitable for CEOs to thrive and to build the biggest business they can build. Another thing that I, that I believe is interesting is that uh, you know, Santander has a, a truly global uh, footprint. Mm-hmm. So you can see interesting deals uh, you know, from like Europe and US, but also from typically like Latin America, right? right. So, so, and how do you see the, the, the rise of these deals in, in emerging markets? Because we all know the couple of unicorns like Nubank, uh, that was like the, the revolute of Latin America. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, it would be great to share some of uh, your experience in uh, how this uh, fintech market evolved, you know, in places where that maybe are not in our everyday radar. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I mean, I think if COVID has done something, I feel it has it has democratized knowledge. And so typically, if you look at the classic ecosystems, you look at Silicon Valley, you look at London, you look at some, you look at some parts in, in Asia, back in the days, it was all about a concentration of capital, the right knowledge and institutional factors. That has been democratized. And so what we're seeing, you know, taking Latin America as an example, is that even in the smartest in the smallest corner of Latin America, you can build an amazing company. And so we've gone from a, you know, Brazil plus Mexico kind of architecture of the continent to, you know, Kushki in Ecuador being a unicorn and amazing companies coming up in Colombia. And, you know, so a lot of these markets are starting to see a lot of that rise. And there's also a lot of capital available for the region now. But it's really about the ability, I think, to access knowledge and uh, access uh, entrepreneurs who've done it before and, and gather that, that knowledge and that, those insights to build new companies. So, very excited about that. So, 
the you know right now as you know i'm uh, i'm investing in africa mm -hmm. uh, mainly but uh, if i remember the time uh, where i was dealing with europe mm -hmm. uh, the collaboration between different vcs uh, at the beginning of it uh, was pretty strong yeah. is that still the case or maybe the fact that you know everyone grew bigger and you know you need less so you know the the, the experience tells you already what is the weight of the risk so and uh, it is actually a genuine question that I'm having yeah. is, is that beside you and I that are friends that would collaborate anyway mm -hmm. but how is the case now with also the new kids on the block yeah it's interesting because I think it's really about kind of the way the new kids on the block if you will are, are operating right uh, so as you say you know we, we come from a more traditional co-investment uh, setting not because of a corporate VC background but more so because we think that at each stage in a company it's good to bring the right brains that and, and nobody knows everything. So at the end of the day, if you bring two or three parties to the table that can help in such way, you know, it's always about smart capital. You can do that. Now the thing these days is that you know rounds have gone bigger at every single stage, and then you have a bunch of VCs that are much bigger in size that, because of their own mandate, ownership, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, they want to take the whole round. So the whole co-investment, let's build something that's maybe a little bit more involved thing, um, oftentimes may not be the most appealing. Uh, solution for, for an entrepreneur who on the other side may have a solution that uh, that's a clean term sheet very quick you know kind of no structure nothing like that right so I think that's kind of where the market is going you know I, I wouldn't say I'm you know happy about it not happy about it it's the way the market is going I think sometimes entrepreneurs are leaving smart capital on the you know on the table for taking other other term sheets that may be less helpful potentially uh, and so I would just say you know to the extent that people can think a little bit more twice, like, you know, maybe these people would be really more helpful to our business because money is one thing, but then experience, connections, insights is another thing that, you know, needs to be valued accordingly, I think. Thank you, Manu. Mira, sabes que acaba de tener una idea. Y por qué no hacemos ahora una parte, una parte de la entrevista en español? Muy bien. Porque me gustaría hablar de, de, del aspecto cultural, uh -huh. ¿no? De, de las inversiones. Eh, yo creo que una cultura puramente eh, anglosaxona uh -huh. o, o quizás europea, quizás entienden menos ¿no? lo que significa eh, pues, poner dinero en una startup que, que, que tiene una, un imprinting cultural fuerte, ¿no? uh -huh. típicamente en Latinoamérica. Y tal. Eh, Tú pues tienes mucha cultura, ¿no? Porque uh -huh. debes ser un europeo, pero también eres español y has vivido en Bélgica mucho tiempo, eres francés y tal. ¿Y cuánto es importante tener ese aspecto también cuando hablas con los, con los emprendedores, uh -huh. no? Porque tal vez te sienten más, eh, más cerca, ¿no? De, uh -huh. de, de su cultura y tal. ¿Es importante? Es muy importante. O sea, yo creo que al final esto de invertir es, 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 como, un, es como un matrimonio. Entonces, al fin y al cabo, si inviertes en una compañía, pero la, la relación que tú tienes con tu inversor es de un, de un gestor de activos, de un asset manager, fría, fiscalizante, es, ¿es divertido? No lo sé. ¿sabes? En cambio, si, si tienes una conexión más personal, porque sabes que va a haber momentos buenos y celebrar los momentos buenos es importante, claro. y sabes que va a haber momentos malos y estar a las duras y a las maduras en los momentos malos también es importante. Yo creo que al final la conexión personal es súper importante. Que al fin, al, al fin y al cabo, pues la, la empatía ¿no? con, los, con los emprendedores y, y, y los founders te permite, yo creo, dos cosas. Primero, 
quizás de entender los matices ¿no? uh -huh. que, que alguien que no, que no habla el idioma no, no, no tiene. Pero también en los momentos chungos, ¿no? de, eh, pues te permite tener ese, mano, ese, ese diálogo mano a mano, ¿no? Sí, sí. que no sería posible si no lo piensas. Sí, sí. No, y además, por ejemplo, ahora nosotros estamos viendo mucho invertir eh, en Europa en el sentido amplio de la palabra. O sea, tradicionalmente hemos tenido más inversiones en el Reino Unido, en Alemania, por, un poco por las dinámicas, pero ahora tenemos inversiones en Austria, y en España, y en Irlanda, y estamos mirando más mercados. Y te das cuenta que al final la diversidad que hay en Europa y, y las dinámicas de cada mercado nacional hay que entenderlas también. Y al final, por mucho que todas las startups quieran tener un negocio paneuropeo, siempre tienen que empezar en un mercado. Y ser exitoso en ese mercado es importante. Y, y para ese éxito, pues hay que entender cómo funciona, yo qué sé, el cliente bancario alemán, o cómo funciona la burocracia francesa, o cómo funciona la picaresca española para claro. vender, o yo qué sé. ¿Sabes? Cada país tiene un poco... Y, y, y en este mercado actual en el que el capital se ha vuelto tan global y en el que un inversor chino aparece, invierte en Irlanda y salta en otro avión e invierte en Brasil como si fuera un PowerPoint, ¿sabes? Yo creo que al final entender esas matices a veces es lo que te va a hacer ganar un deal y a veces sobre todo es lo que va a hacer que una compañía encuentre Product Market Fit a, a que no lo encuentre, ¿no? Y yo creo que eso es importantísimo. O en, o en el caso, pues, uh, que, 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 que sin duda, pues... Uh, Va a pasar muchas veces conseguir que esta startup pivotee, ¿no? Y que Exacto. no sé cómo se dice en español, pero sí, sí, pivote. eh, sí, sí. pivotear, ¿no? Que consiga pivotear porque el modelo de negocio eh, en el que tú pues, apuestas cuando, eh, cuando inviertes en una startup tal vez no es el mismo Exacto. tres años después, ¿no? Exacto. Exacto. Sí, sí, a ver, los negocios en particular en fintech son negocios regulados y la regulación no solo es regulación, son usos de cliente distintos, son muchas cosas. Entonces al final, si tú quieres invertir en un negocio que va a ser multipaís, entender la realidad de esos países es mucho más, o sea, es, es importantísimo. O sea, un Amazon puede expandir a un mercado nuevo con su playbook y no pasa nada y lo va a hacer bien, pero las fintechs es más complicado, por la naturaleza del producto, del consumidor y por lo que implica para el consumidor. Entonces, si no tienes esa empatía y esa capacidad ya sea capacidad o curiosidad por entender cómo es el siguiente mercado, difícil, difícil. Guys, we could brag and, you know, do the next one in French, but we will stop here. And uh, thank you, Mano, for, well, for being with us. Great to see you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's Money 2020, Breaking Banks Europe. And it's a wrap. Thanks for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a Provoke Media podcast in cooperation with Fintech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out, or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.